Well, Happy New Year to all of you precious people. So good to see you. And as I've reflected on life as we do around the turn of the year and other significant occasions, it just reminds me all over again. Actually, I was thinking about this in our 3.30 get-together. It reminds me all over again how just absurdly blessed I am, my family is, to be part of this flock. Uh, love you so much. I'm so deeply, deeply indebted to the Lord's kindness to me through you. And I don't know if you're one of those resolution people and if you've made them or you're one of them and you've already broken them uh, for 2023. But, you know, whatever the resolutions are, you know, read the whole Bible every day, um, make all the money, achieve all the goals, lose all the weight, lose all your weight, you know, down to zero and back again. Um, you, you know, achieve the academics, achieve the athletics, whatever it is. Uh, I hope you have, you know, success in your goals. But if you're like me and you make more realistic ones than read the whole Bible every day or lose all the weight, whatever your goals are, if you're like me, we tend to set ourselves up for failure and we tend to be decimated when we don't reach the unattainable. And today's sermon is the distinction between Christianity and everything else, secularism, false religion, it's really the only sermon we have. We just keep preaching the same sermon over and over again. And we hope not to change that. We hope and pray that we get better at it, but that it not become any different. Because here at Grace Church, we have a fundamental conviction. We believe that when Jesus got up from the dead, and said the same thing to two different groups of people on that day, he actually meant what he said. And what he said was basically, the whole Bible is about himself and about what he accomplished in his gospel labors. That's his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to glory. And so today's sermon is not about our big promises to God. Our big resolution, here's how we're going to do it for you this year, Lord. It's actually another needed reminder, which again is the distinction of Christianity from everything else. It's a reminder of what God has done for us, which we couldn't do for ourselves. Today's is the sixth of eight sermons in an eight-part series covering from Genesis to Revelation. The first four of those were in the Old Testament. Last week, number five brought us into the New Testament where we looked at the four gospels, the life of the most fascinating, intriguing, mesmerizing, captivating, alluring, enchanting, dazzling, stupendous person who's ever touched the earth, the Lord Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This week covers the rest of the New Testament up to the last book from the book of Acts to the book of Jude, it took about 
don't quibble over this with me because it's not the main point, about 60-ish years for those books to unfold. The New Testament. From about 30 AD to about 90 AD, from the day of Pentecost to the writing of the book of Jude. That's what we're gonna cover today in our Seeing God's Story overview sermon series of the Bible. Last week we made our way, as I mentioned, to the beginning of the New Testament. What we saw there was the big reveal, Emmanuel, God came to us, wrapped in humanity, the Lord Jesus. We saw that this Jesus is the fulfillment of God's manifold Old Testament promises to send a savior. And how through him, that is Jesus of Nazareth, God meticulously fulfilled all of his saving promises through the life, the death, and the resurrection of the King of glory, Jesus the Lord. Well, today we're going to pick up a few days after his resurrection, the day of Pentecost. And it's about AD 30. We're going to make our way, Lord willing, to about AD 90. And in that 60-year period, we have a question. What was God doing for about half a century? Those, those 50, 60 years. And my argument is going to be that what God was doing then is precisely what he is doing now. In fact, I don't know about you, but the reason I'm in this room today, and I would say the reason, even if you don't know it, you are in this room today, is because of what unfolds from the day of Pentecost to the book of Jude. Dr. Easley, in his overview book of the Bible that we've been kind of tracking along beside for an outline, says, we belong here. This is the period of Christ's disciple-making mandate, when God's plan has moved from focusing on persons of a single ethnic group in a single place, that's Israel, to redeeming persons out of every ethnic group in every place, that's the local church. In the decades following the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, what we find is that the title of today's sermon was and is the dominating theme of God's work in the world. What he was doing in the pages of the New Testament is precisely what he is doing even now. That is, God is spreading his kingdom through the church. It's the title of today's sermon. It's the focus that we'll try to give our attention to for these moments together. But let me just put it to you. It, man on the street comes to you. You're one of those religious people. What is your God doing? What's he about? What's his activity? If he does anything, what is it? What would you say? I would say God is doing three main things from the time of Jesus' resurrection to the time of Jesus' return. He's doing the one thing he's always been doing, and it overarches all of the things that God ever does. That is, God is glorifying himself. But he's also doing that in a particular way. Number two, he's glorifying himself mainly by doing good for all of his people. 
It's astonishing, but it's true. God is not leaving one of his children out of the absurd blessings that Jesus paid for at Calvary. He's glorifying his name by doing good for his people. But the third thing is he is getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. He's evangelizing the nations. He's seeing to it that people hear and understand how they can be made right with God forever through the labors of the Lord Jesus. Well, how is God doing that? How is God bringing glory to his name and doing good for his people and getting the gospel to the nations? The Bible's answer to that is singular. Now God's manifold in his activity and he's doing things that we've never even thought or known about. He's at work in 10 trillion ways in every nanosecond of all of time. But if you read the pages of scripture, you will find one prevailing answer of how God is glorifying his name, doing good for all of his people and getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. The answer is faithful New Testament local churches. So the summary sentence of our eight part Seeing God's Story series of overview sermons on the Bible taken again from Dr. Easley's work on Bible history is the Lord God through his Christ is graciously building a kingdom of redeemed people for their joy and for his glory. To see how that truth unfolds from the book of Acts chapter two, all the way to the book of Jude, please turn with me for our opening scripture reading to the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter two. We'll pick up our reading in verse one and I'll give you some handles along the way of which verses I'm reading. Acts chapter two, beginning in verse one. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Skip down to verse 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. Skip down to verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Skip down to verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he, that's David, looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. Verse 32, this Jesus 
God raised up again, a fact to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted, that is Jesus, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear, for it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Join me as we pray together, asking for God's help. Lord, I pray that the most Bible ignorant, never heard a verse of the Bible person or as close to that person as is in the room right now would be arrested like you did on the day of Pentecost by the person and power of the Jesus exalting Holy Spirit. I also pray for all of the rest of us who think that we know you so well and think that we're so acquainted with your word that nobody can teach us a new thing or that this sermon is gonna be another boring one in a long list of boring sermons. God, would you cause the Holy Spirit to light the fire of the truth of your word that beams from the face of the risen Christ. Show us Jesus, we ask, and we ask this for your glory in his name, amen. I want to try to give you, as I mentioned, an overview of the whole New Testament from Acts to Jude, but I want to do so by following three time periods that are unfolded in the pages of the New Testament. Now, the book of Acts covers about 30 years, from about 30 AD, AD 30, to about AD 60. But that's not the time period I want to break it up in, although we'll use Acts heavily to get along the way. First, it's the time period of the early church among the Jews, the day of Pentecost for about the next 15 years. From AD 30 to about AD 45, the vast majority, not exclusive, but almost, the vast majority of Christians were from the Jews for 15 years post-Pentecost. Then something happened. And from about AD 45, you could say especially to 65, but we're gonna to go to 70, that's when the temple was destroyed. From 80, 45 to 70, the gospel rapidly expanded among the Gentiles, which newsflash, that's you. Then from the destruction of the temple, AD 70 to about AD 90, the church became predominantly, almost exclusively, disconnected from Judaism. So it starts primarily with converts among the Jews, AD 30, and it ends totally distinct from Judaism. And that's what happened in the New Testament. We'll look at those three time periods. First, the church among the Jews, the first 15 years from Pentecost onward, before the Lord Jesus Christ ascended into heaven after he rose from the dead, he appeared many times to different people and he commanded his disciples to mainly do one thing. When he appeared to his followers after his resurrection, Jesus mainly told his disciples, the whole Bible's about me and my gospel work. 
And he told them to mainly do one thing, that is wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. We'll go to a lot of verses. If you're a Bible flipper, get ready. Acts 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Verse 7. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Jesus knew that those who had encountered him, even in his risen glory, needed, not a plus, not an extra, not a bonus, absolute necessity, essential, needed the Holy Spirit to empower them to be ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus in the world. You can't do this in your own power. So the principle of the book of Acts is this. The church of Jesus without the spirit of Jesus is completely powerless in the world. Reminds me of the Asian pastor who came to the U.S. and visited a bunch of megachurches. I've told you about him before. But the South Korean pastor who pastored the megachurch of 50 plus thousand people over there in Korea, after his tour of the U.S. megachurches, was asked, what did he think? And his main reflection was, it's amazing what you all can do without the Holy Spirit. Jesus knew that those who encountered him, even in his risen glory, needed the Holy Spirit to empower them to be ambassadors of Jesus in the world. Just as a congregation without the spirit of the risen Jesus is impotent in the world, so also a congregation of redeemed sinners filled with the person of God, the Holy Spirit, is an unstoppable force, even in the face of the most extreme persecution. That's what the book of Acts is all about. The day of Pentecost, which I opened our reading with from Acts chapter 2, is the birthday of the church. It is the empowering of the church for her mission to testify to the truthfulness of the saving efficacy of Jesus to a lost and dying world. Dr. Kendall Easley said in his Bible overview summary, he said the entire New Testament from Pentecost to Revelation, that's our sermon today, can be summed up this way. From Pentecost until the end time scenario unfolds, which is where we're currently living, God is about the business of spreading the message of the kingdom through, drum roll please, you his church. When we see God coming down in scripture, like we just read in Acts chapter two, we should be cued to understand something significant is happening in redemptive history. This is true throughout the entirety of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. In Genesis chapter one, verse two, we see the spirit of God hovering over the surface of the deep. Formless creation brought to form and order through the power of the Holy Spirit. Just like we see the presence of God hovering over the top of Mount Sinai when God comes down and gives the Ten Commandments to Moses on stone tablets. 
Multiple times in the Old Testament, we see the Spirit descend on prophets and on kings, empowering them for their service and ministry. Just as in Emmanuel, when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove. Anytime you see that in Scripture, it should cue us to see, ah, God is turning the page in His redeeming, redeeming purposes in world history. Acts 2 is like that. The Spirit falling upon the church in Acts 2 indicates a new epoch in God's redeeming purposes in the world. Not only did the Spirit descend in Acts chapter 2 upon the church, inaugurating the age in which we now live, the church age, but He did so in accord with Jesus' statement in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, which we also just read, the Holy Spirit descended in every region of the world upon all the peoples, empowering the church for her mission. Acts 1.8 is the outline of the book of Acts from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's exactly the way the book of Acts unfolds. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts. And what we find in the book of Acts is that the church filled with the person of the Holy Spirit Momentary theological aside, don't refer to him as an it. He is a person. The third person of the Trinity, God of God, when he descended and filled the church with himself, Jesus exalting power, the book of Acts basically says to us what we often sing around here at Grace Church in that wonderful hymn, the church shall never perish her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish. He is with her to the end, though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale against a foe or traitor, she ever shall prevail. That's the book of Acts. At Pentecost, I said the church was born. I believe she existed in embryo prior to that day. But Pentecost was the inauguration of that new era, era of redemptive history, as I mentioned, the church age. Now, when the Holy Spirit came, and when Peter, a very different man than he was in the four Gospels, because he met the risen Jesus, that's the difference, stands on the day of Pentecost filled with the person and power of the Holy Spirit and proclaims in known languages the gospel to all the gathered throng who had come to Jerusalem from the Jewish dispersion. And he begins to proclaim to them, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What happened? Open your Bible to Acts 2.37 and you can read it for yourself. Acts 2.37, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Has that ever happened to you? Look, you and I were both very privileged to be born in a Christianized land and to be familiar with Christianized categories. But one of the Big, big works of the enemy in our land for the last couple hundred years is to take fundamental truth 
and make people think they believe it if they're fundamentalistic. But if the fundamentals haven't penetrated your soul, it doesn't matter how eloquently you can recite them. When they heard this, what did they hear? They heard that according to God's predetermined plan, sinners took the Lord Jesus, God incarnate, and nailed Him to a cross because God intended through Jesus to save His people. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Verse 37 says, and Peter said, Peter and the rest of the apostles said, sorry, they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them in verse 38, repent. Each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about three thousand souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles and all those who had believed were gathered together, had all things in common. Verse 45, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as any might have need. Day by day, they were continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This, as I said, is the birthday of the church. The new covenant, the New Testament people of God are Christian. That's why we call ourselves Christians. We are Christ's people. And they gave themselves to a precious few things. Four, to be specific, Christians, Christ's people, wanted to know him, so they gave themselves to the apostles' teaching. What does that mean? Learning to follow God's word according to the doctrine of Christ, now written down for us in the pages of the New Testament. That's the apostles' teaching. Number two, they gave themselves to fellowship. What do Christ's people do in the New Testament? They give themselves to the apostles' teaching and they give themselves to fellowship. I love this description of Christian fellowship. It is a spirit-empowered commitment to the second greatest commandment. I'm going to say that again. A spirit-empowered commitment to the second greatest commandment. Fellowship is not hanging out. Lost people do that. Christian fellowship is you deciding that you are going to make it your prayer-filled life ambition to make other Christians happy in Jesus. Fellowship. Third, they gave themselves to the breaking of bread. This is undoubtedly the frequent, frequent repetition of the observance of the Lord's Supper. Apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread together. 
Finally, to prayer. That's worship. That is a spirit-empowered commitment to the first great commandment. To love our Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is what the Christian life looks like. This doesn't make you a Christian. These are the fundamentals, and you can be a fundamentalist. But I'm saying you must embrace the Christ about whom these things uh, then give, give shape. This is what the Christian life looks like. This is the basic shape of the Christian life. This is the bone structure of the Christian life. Living Christianly, according to the New Testament, looks like these four things. This is what a local church is. So I want to ask you at the beginning of a new year, all your big resolutions, mine too, do you order your life around these four things? Or do you plan your life however is most convenient to you and hope to somehow fit in these four things. Christians in the New Testament are people who are filled with the Spirit of Christ upon their conversion. And they therefore follow Jesus. First, by being baptized into the fellowship and accountability of a visible local church. And in the New Testament, receiving the Holy Spirit upon true conversion. That is essential. Regeneration. That is essential to belonging to Christ's heavenly church. And baptism is a believer's doorway into the visible church. But as the Spirit empowers Christ's saved and baptized people, they start devoting themselves all through the pages of the New Testament to these four things. Apostolic, Christ-centered teaching of the Bible. Christ-centered love of their neighbor, fellowship. Regular assembling together for Christ-centered partaking of the Lord's Supper and Christ-focused prayer and worship as the expression that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the New Testament. That's the sermon. That, that's all of it. There's so much detail. We'll just touch a little bit of it. Before we leave the book of Acts, let me tell you about two other Pentecosts. They're not called that, and technically they're not that. The day of Pentecost was Acts 2. There was one of those. But there are repeats of that day in a way in different contexts. Acts 2 is the Jerusalem Pentecost, Acts 8 the Samaritan, and Acts 10 the Gentile, the rest of the world. But there's only one common denominator in Acts 2, 8, and 10. Humanly, it's a person. Not divine, the person of the Spirit. Obviously, he is the most significant common denominator. But humanly, there's another person, Peter. That's significant. Peter's the preacher in Acts 2. Peter and John show up to Samaria in Acts 8. Peter's in Cornelius's living room in Acts 10. Why is that significant? Because in Matthew 16, Jesus asked his 12 closest friends who do people say I am? And sitting up north in Caesarea Philippi, beneath a waterfall on a mountainside, people said, people say you're John the Baptist. People say you're Elijah. People say you're all kinds of people. And then Jesus turned to them, and you know the story. Jesus said, who do you say I am? And on behalf of the 11 faithful, not counting Judas, Peter answered. Matthew 16, 16. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. 
Jesus responded to Peter, blessed are you, singular, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not overpower it. A little change in the original language. Jesus is saying, I'm going to build my church on the authority of the statement that is true that you said. I'm the Christ. I'm the son of the living God. On that rock, I'm going to build my church. Verse 19, very next verse. But I will give to you, singular, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you, singular, not all the apostles, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you, singular, loosed on earth will have been loosed in heaven. It's like Jesus hands Peter a set of keys. He gets to unlock and open the door. Guess what happened after Acts 10? Jerusalem 2, Samaria 8, Gentiles 10. Peter pretty much vanishes from the scene. We hardly hear another thing about him in the whole book of Acts. Paul begins to be the predominant human figure that God uses after that. I think... Jesus in Matthew 16 understood that Peter would be present to authenticate the truthfulness of the gospel, to proclaim it, and to verify that it is the Jesus-exalting work of the Holy Spirit that is happening in these contexts from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Then after that, the doors have all been unlocked. And there's no need for Peter anymore or for those keys anymore because any Gentile and any Jew, any Samaritan from any place in the world that ever turns to Christ is immediately, instantaneously, and forever irrevocably filled and sealed by the person of the Holy Spirit. That's the book of Acts. We find in the book of Acts so much of the history of the early church, including its first martyr, Stephen, who was a deacon in that early church in Jerusalem. And while he recounts the history of God's saving purposes in his final will and testament, Saul of Tarsus is holding the cloaks of the people who kill Stephen so that their arms can be a little more free to throw stones at his head and kill him for his testimony to Christ. In the next chapter, Saul, who held all those cloaks, is converted. He's on his way to persecute Christians even to death. We already know he's guilty of the death of Stephen. He's a murderer. He hates Christ and he hates all Christians. And in his own words, he went to stamp out the way to get Christianity off the face of the map. And on his way to persecute Christians... The king of glory shows up in his pathway, stuns him with the resplendent glory that belongs only to the God-man, the Redeemer, the Savior, Jesus. Knocks Paul off his horse. Paul, Saul, changed to Paul, is converted. After his baptism, he goes and hides. He goes to the desert of Arabia for three years. He relearns the Old Testament that he thought he knew so well. Trained in the schools of Gamaliel, Pharisee of Pharisees, Hebrew of Hebrews, tribe of Benjamin. This is Paul's stock. This is his pedigree. He had all the best training. He could quote, no doubt about it, the first five books of the Bible verbatim. 
He knew God's word, but after he was converted by Christ to Christ, he goes to the desert of Arabia. And I believe according to his own word in Galatian, by revelation, by revelation, by revelation, three times in Galatians, I believe the risen Lord Jesus showed up to the apostle Paul in the desert of Arabia and taught him the Old Testament that he thought he knew so well. And after those three years, he humbles himself and does no public ministry for about a total of 12, nine years after Arabia. Then in about AD 45, he shows up in Antioch at Barnabas's request to help teach the local church there in Antioch for about a year. About two years-ish after his initial arrival in Antioch, the Holy Spirit tells the fasting praying church to send Barnabas and Paul out on their first missionary journey. That's about 47 AD 47, he goes on his first missionary journey. It takes him about three months. He goes to places that haven't heard the gospel. He goes to Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, after landing in Pisidia and Antioch. And he proclaims the gospel to people. He tells them, if you do not repent from your sin and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, go read his sermons. This is literally his point. If you do not give your life to the risen Jesus of Nazareth, you have no hope of eternal life. That's the kerygma, the, the New Testament word for preaching. That's what Paul's message was. People believe that gospel. He circles back through those cities on his way to Antioch to report what God had done. Before he circles back, they stone him outside of Lystra. They thought they killed him. The reason we know they thought they killed him is because they drug his lifeless body outside the city and discarded his so they thought corpse on the side of the road. But Paul was resuscitated by the Holy Spirit. He went right back into that city. You can read this in Acts 14 and said, basically, who wants to sign up to be a pastor of this church? And people did it. He appointed elders in those churches. And then he went back to Antioch and told them what God had done. They knew what they were signing up for. This isn't games. This is life and death. Second missionary journey, about two years later, AD 49, expands the concentric circle. He goes further into Asia Minor. His heart's desire was to get to Spain, to go to the furthest place he could possibly think about on planet Earth to get the gospel to those people too, because you got it right. If they don't hear the gospel and receive, they will perish forever. After a second missionary journey, making his way back to Antioch, about the year AD 52, he goes on his third missionary journey. And this is his summary of all those experiences. I'm a servant of Christ. I've been in more labors and imprisonment. I've beaten so, been beaten so many times I can't count it. I've been so often in danger of death I can't even recollect all the times. I do remember that there were five times that the Jews lashed me with their 39 lashes and there were three other times that they beat me with rods I remember on that first journey, 
that I was stoned. There were three times on my ambitious endeavor to get the gospel to Spain that I had to go waterbound, but I was shipwrecked. On one of those occasions, I spent a night in the sea, probably on a piece of debris from that shipwrecked boat. Many times I was on journeys, traveled by river to get away from people trying to kill me. That was very dangerous. On top of the danger of the water, there were the robbers. They were dangerous. Even my own countrymen were dangerous. All the Gentiles, they were dangerous to me. Every city I went to, even when I left the cities and went to the wilderness, that was dangerous. When I went to the Mediterranean Sea, definitely dangerous. False brothers, they posed as true Christians, but proved not to be. That was dangerous. I was in labor, hardship. I can't even tell you how many nights I never got a wink of sleep. I was hungry and thirsty more times than I can count. I had no food. I was freezing cold and totally exposed. Apart from all of that, there was the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. That takes you to about 60 AD, AD 60. It's, it's 60 BC, it's AD 60. I always get it back. It, AD 60, that's where we're at. And Paul, through arrest and imprisonment, shows up in Rome. He's there for two full years. While he's there, people have heard about him, but he's also sending out an APB inviting people to come to his house. He's not ashamed of the gospel. And he preaches the kingdom of God. Acts 28, verse 30 and 31, welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness. And then about A.D. 65, we can do the math and tradition tells us this isn't recorded in Scripture, but Paul was martyred probably by beheading, had his head cut off. I've told this church before just because my sanctified imagination, you know, try to envision what might it have been like, but we do know that the Romans would have used chopping blocks, not a guillotine. And somebody probably with a sword lopped his head off. So if his head's on a chopping block, and somebody's about to come down with a sword, I like to think that Paul looked up at him and smiled and said, you cannot kill me. I don't know if that happened or not, but I do know this. The last word in the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit's exclamation mark in the devil's face. Unhindered. That's the last Greek word in the book of Acts, Acts 28, 31. Teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. Not one of those rivers and oceans, not one of those false brethren, not one of those beatings, lashings, whippings, imprisonment, none of that stopped the progress of the gospel. And your heart should skip a beat because that's why you're in this room right now. God got you here. You could be one of the careless, carnal pagans driving the 240 loop as we speak. The gospel's not going to be stopped until King Jesus comes back 
and gets his bride for himself. So, what happened? I got to consolidate, so I'm, I know what happened, but I don't know how to tell you what happened. Um, what happened next, it, it was actually in the midst of all of that, is really significant. I told you that the New Testament opens for about 15 years after Pentecost with a predominantly Jewish convert church. You could basically think of the church for the first 15 years after Pentecost as a denomination of Judaism, but these were the real Christians. At the 15 year mark, something huge happened, which is no doubt about it while you're sitting in this room right now. It's called the Jerusalem Council. It's recorded in Acts 15. And the question was, do you have to become a Jew before you can become a Christian? Because the gospel started penetrating the Gentile world and the first church to successfully reach non-Jews was Antioch. In the Jerusalem Council, we find out that the church at Antioch sent a delegation down to Jerusalem, Paul, Barnabas, and some others, to ask them, get the, get the apostles and the elders, Acts 15.2, to look into this issue. So they look into it. And in Acts 15.4-6, when they got to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders, Acts 15, 6, came together to look into this matter. You see, Peter had already preached at Cornelius' house, seen a bunch of Gentiles saved. Paul and Barnabas had already been preaching the gospel like men with their hair on fire all over the place, but God was saving Gentiles left and right. So in Acts 15, 7, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, I know, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? You got to keep the law to be right with God. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Acts 15, 11 is one of the most important verses in your Bible. The resounding answer of the Jerusalem council when they looked into the matter, Acts 15 is no. The council affirmed that true salvation is all of grace through faith apart from works. Paul wanted to test this issue so carefully that in Galatians chapter two, he brings Titus to Jerusalem, who's uncircumcised, and asks the apostles, are we preaching the same gospel? Because I'm going to the whole Gentile world and I'm telling all of them, they do not have to become a Jew to become a Christian. And Galatians chapter two says, this is the most powerful handshake that's ever happened. The apostles gave to Paul the right hand of Christian fellowship. They said, we are preaching the same gospel, all by grace, all through faith, all apart from works, all wrought by Jesus alone. 
The apostles unanimously affirmed that. And so what happened after those first 15 years is the gospel absolutely exploded in the Gentile world. So that instead of a little denomination of true Christians that were Jews who converted to Christ, AD 70, a big war happened, the temple was destroyed, no more sacrifices are getting made here, so everybody's pretty clear, we can't even do the sacrifices that supposedly make people right with God. It's all by grace through faith, so by the time you get to the end of the New Testament, you have an almost exclusively Gentile church, and I say almost exclusively, because there were plenty of Jews who had turned to Christ. Paul began every one of his missionary endeavors by going to a city and showing up at the synagogue to tell them the Savior God promised to send you has come. And if they wouldn't receive him, he would shake the dust from his feet, go out the door and preach to anybody else who would listen. And most of the churches in those places were majority, if not exclusively Gentile. Almost every letter of the New Testament is written to a Gentile congregation, but there were some Jews who had truly converted to Christ, completed Jews. And it was really important in the New Testament. This brings us to our close. It was really important in the New Testament. Does it sound like it was written this morning or 2000 years ago? How relevant is this? It was really important for there to be Jew-Gentile unity in Christ. You see, there was a concern that as the church expanded throughout the world, that there would be carnal tensions between various ethnicities that had already been eradicated by the cross of Christ. There are no barriers between Christians of different ethnicities because Jesus, to quote God, has broken down the barrier of the dividing wall. There is no more this race, that race, this ethnicity, ethnicity, we are one in Christ. This is heavily emphasized in the book of Ephesians and in Paul's insistence that the Gentile churches all over the world take up money to help their impoverished, persecuted, suffering, here it comes, Jewish siblings in Jerusalem, those who had turned to Christ. Unity among the church is of utmost importance because the king of the church said, all men will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. The night before he was crucified, he prayed before he went into Gethsemane in John 17, Father, make them all one, even as we are one, so that the world might believe that you sent me. What's the consequence? of disunity. We're a reverse witness to the world. We're actually telling the world why they should not believe in Jesus if we won't be unified with each other. It's a huge deal in the New Testament. So that takes us to today. These are the last days. From the resurrection to the return of Jesus, that's what the New Testament means when it says last days. The last days have been unfolding for 2,000 years. What has God been doing in this little brief time period? To the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. What has the Lord been doing for the last 2000 years, starting with Pentecost? What's the church age all about? He's bringing glory to his name. He's doing good for all of his people. 
and he's getting the gospel to the nations. How is he doing it? By saving Christians, uniting them in local churches who tell others the gospel, and he saves people, and he unites them in local churches who tell others the gospel, and he saves people, and unites them in local churches who tell other people the gospel. The local church is God's plan A, and it may be exposing my ignorance, but I don't see any other plan God has revealed for his primary purpose in the last days than a Jesus-saturated, apostolic local church. Apostolic as in the apostles' teaching recorded in the pages of the New Testament. So what does God want to do? I'll tell you, he wrote a sentence for Grace Church. I would say that to any Christian congregation. This is what he wants to do here. He wants us all to attain to the unity of the faith. He wants us all to know the Son of God and be built up to a mature man. He wants us all to know the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's Ephesians 4.13. He wants Jesus to be proclaimed in this church. Why? So that every person may be presented complete in Christ. That's Colossians 1. He wants all of us to have the attitude of Christ in ourselves. What would that look like? You and me considering each other more important than ourselves, not looking out to our own personal interest, but the interest of others. That's the attitude of Christ in us, who brought glory to God through his self humbling, his death, his resurrection. But I got to leave you with a sober. Sober, sober, biblical exclamation point. God told us what's going to happen. The more time unfolds and the more people start to distort truth and twist Scripture, it's been happening in every age, this is what God said will happen. Evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse. Deceiving and being deceived. God also said that we should, we must devote ourselves to the sacred writings, which are able to give us wisdom leading to salvation, which is through faith in Jesus Christ. This is 2 Timothy. All scriptures inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, so that every Godly person, the man of God, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We're to preach this word in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who specially covenanted to be present in a special way with his local church gathered. This Jesus will judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, because the time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accord with their own desires. They will turn away their ears from the truth. They will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Because in the last days, God's glorifying his name, doing good for his people, and getting the gospel to the nations through churches 
that are riveted to the Jesus of the New Testament. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, so much, so much, so much. And we've only touched so little. But we thank you that from the day of Pentecost and the empowering of the church for her Jesus-exalting mission in the world, all the way down to this present day, in little unknown corners of the world like Memphis, Tennessee, and far-off jungles in South America, and high first-world cities and buildings all over Europe, from the last 2,000 years until Jesus tarries, even if it be 2,000 more, you are building your church. Thank you, Jesus, that you are keeping that promise. As we sang earlier, you will hold us fast. You will advance your kingdom. You will see to it that the bride for which you have died is one day beautified with your own glory. Lord, cause us to be faithful. From now until we see your lovely face, would you make Grace Church so full of the Holy Spirit that the distinguishing mark of this church in word, in deed, to one another and to our lost kinsmen, the distinguishing mark would be the pervasive aroma of the risen Jesus. Fill us with your Spirit to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.